welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. Today we're going to look at the neuroscience of healing. And this is going to be a really in-depth report. And I'm really excited to share this with you. I condense things, so I tried to get rid of as much unnecessary jargon and not hard-hitting information as possible. The idea here is that everything you listen to should be able to empower you in your daily life. And if there is not at least a couple things here that doesn't have, I would say, a radical impact on everyone that thinks about how they walk if they are into health, wellness, healing, spirituality, mysticism, and so on, then I would be super surprised, and I would hope that you would write me, because writing this whole thing up, I was had my mind blown many times. So out of uh, how these practices actually work, going into things like breath work, fasting, the sauna, the cold plunge, the dopamine system, and many other things, including nootropics and different things with food and medicine, how things interact. So uh, it's information that's applicable to anyone and everyone, and I'm really excited to share it. Originally, it was presented as a in-person presentation, but I didn't have time to include everything, so I uh, am doing it here. So the first thing I want to open with is a quote by the Dalai Lama. I have often said that science proves facts that conflict with Buddhism understanding. Buddhism must change accordingly. We should always adopt a view that accords with the facts. If upon investigation we find that there is reason and a proof for a point, then we should accept it. However, clear distinction should be made between what is not found by science and what is found to be non-existent by science. What science finds to be non-existent, we should all accept as non-existent. But what science merely does not find is a completely different matter. An example is consciousness itself. Although sentient beings, including humans, have experienced consciousness for centuries, we still do not know what consciousness actually is, its complete nature, and how it functions. I doubt anyone ever will. That last part was mine. <laughs> so, um, question to ask, you know, if you're someone that does practices of a spiritual nature already, fasting and so on, yoga... Why would you bother to look at the neurochemistry of spiritual and mental, emotional, physical practices? Uh, you know it's good. You accept it. It works great. So is it redundant? And my response, if your answer is yes, it's redundant, is that, well, there's a lot of people that don't engage in these practices. And a lot of people are turned off by the language that's used around them and un unsubstantiated claims. And what I think is beautiful is that science and spirituality actually enforce one another when we really look at it. And not only do they enforce one another, but to understand the science will encourage one, I think, as it has for me, to go deeper into the practices. And think about all the people out there that just don't respond to a spiritual vocabulary and all the people that do respond to a scientific vocabulary. And think about how... Also, the more you know from a different lens, the more you're seeing the whole picture. So, we're going to look at neuroscience because it offers a very clear window into what is actually happening to us when we engage in the practice. Beyond a gross simplification that, yes, it elevates consciousness, it moves energy, and connects us to mystery. We can all attest to that if we really sincerely do a yogic practice or something. But when we look at what is actually happening to our bodies, our organs, our nervous system, our cardiovascular, endocrine, and hormonal systems, it can give us an extremely powerful new insight in how to refine, optimize, and master that practice to bring about a maximum benefit of what it has to offer. So I'm also myself pretty anti-fluffy new age spirituality. I remember someone was trying to tell me that if you put your right hand on the ground and put your left hand in the air, the right hand releases negative energy and the left hand calls it in from the cosmos. And I felt literally nothing and it just felt like a bunch of woo-woo, like nonsense to me. And I've come across, as I'm sure most people have, a lot of that kind of thing in spirituality. And it's frustrating because there obviously is something very real to spiritual practices. If you do sitting meditation for an hour and don't move and concentrate in your breath, I mean, profound things will happen to you in just a span of an hour. And if you do that daily for years, uh, you will be in a radically transformed place. I could attest to this in many ways. So obviously something is happening, but a lot of times people in the New Age culture just hijack the actual 
actuality of practices and impose something upon them for whatever gains because they want to be someone that has some knowledge or they just failed to question things that were told to them it's not always a bad thing it's just a lack of paying attention and i don't i don't feel like that's healthy and so i wanted to go through like what's actually happening why why is this practice all of a sudden saving my life and that practice was totally worthless to me so looking at what's actually occurring inside of the brain and the body and uh, there's a story that Goenka, who created the movement of Vipassana, not the practice itself, he brought it out from Burma and brought it all over the world, died, I think, in 2013. And his story is, in a, in a Dharma teaching, says that, you know, there, there's a group of guys in Varanasi in India, at the holy city, and it's a city of hashish and bong, and for those of you who don't know, bong is a drink that they make in india where they mix ganja with some other things and you, you know it gets you high just like marijuana does uh, i ac personally accidentally and i swear accidentally took it um <laughs> not knowing what it was which is actually what happens to a lot of people who travel over there and it, and so there's a group intense. of guys and they're in varanasi and they're smoking hashish all night and drinking bong and they decide they want to go for a ride down the ganges so they hop in the boat and they start paddling and they're smoking and they're drinking and they're paddling and so on and so forth. And by dawn's rise, they look at each other and realize, wait a minute, we haven't gone anywhere. We're in the same spot that we started in when we got in the boat. It hasn't moved. And they turn around and realize they didn't untie the boat from the dock. <laughs> so this wonderful stories there teach us that right effort is fantastic to discipline yourself, but to have the right knowledge and the wisdom on how to discipline yourself is just as essential. And I know someone that did a 30-day juice fast with a large part trying to lose weight, and they didn't lose any weight. And I was blown away by that when I first told me, but then as I started to study the mechanisms and what's happening in fasting and how it actually works, I was, of course, you didn't lose any weight. That, that makes total sense. But unless you were to ever look at the neuroscience of fasting, you might continue drinking tons of juice and then never losing any weight. So doing a lot of effort and going nowhere. So this is part to help all of us get somewhere, wherever that means to you. And fasting seems like a great place to start too because I am, let's see, 40 hours into a five-day water fast and... Just so you know, I feel amazing. I have tons of energy, like too much energy. Yeah, I feel extremely relaxed and composed and clear-headed. And uh, not really hungry at all. I'm a little empty in my stomach, but I feel fantastic. And we're going to talk about why that is. Is that just because like, I'm superhuman or something? And I, the answer is no. This is something that is just a byproduct of the practice. And when you read about the science behind it, it makes complete sense as to why that is. So... Before we even get into that disclaimer, every practice here and every bit of information, use at your own discretion. Some of these things are dangerous. Fasting is definitely dangerous, and certain people should not do it. I don't recall if it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes, but uh, one of those you are apparently not supposed to fast. I don't know a lot about that, actually. But just there's certain groups of people that shouldn't do certain practices. And if you are going to do a practice, research yourself on it as much as possible talking to people reading literature questioning what everything you come across whether it's a document or a person and tell people you're doing it how you're doing it ask them what they think and feel free to reach out to me if you're involving in any of these practices i have a lot of experience with them and i'm surrounded by a lot of people in community who have even more experience than i do so i like to help people out in that way so questions who here intermittent fasts who here fasts for 24 hours with only water one time a week? Who here does extended water or dry fasting around four times a year in conjunction with the solstice and equinox? I hope that everyone who is able to, by the end of this presentation, will feel extremely inspired to do so. There's a wonderful app you can download called Life Fasting Progress Tracker. I use it. It's free, and it just gives you... Uh, timeline of your fast how many hours you're in how many hours you got to go and this it, it gives a visual of the stages you're going through so you can have your inner experience with it and then look at the app and be like oh it's because i'm now in 
uh, ketosis state that I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z, or now I'm experiencing stem cell regrowth. So it's pretty cool, and it's a great help, and it definitely plays on our dopaminergic system, which I'm going to get into later, and how we respond to things in respect to obstacles and motivation, which is really interesting. And I want to give a shout-out to Andrew Huberman's podcast. People should listen to it. It's a little heady, but it's got a lot of great info and inspired me deeply to go deep into this uh, way of sharing information with y'all. So I hope that something in here, if not many things, blow your mind and profoundly shift how you relate to life for the bet the the better okay so when your cells are in growth mode which means when you're not fasting uh, there are pathways one specifically called the mtor pathway tell your cells to grow divide and synthesize proteins basically that just means the food is telling the body to keep growing and keep expanding obviously cancer would be a direct byproduct of this pathway being overactive and stimulated uh, well-fed cells have many genes, including those associated, associated with cellular survival and proliferation turned on. So when those genes are on, other ones are off, uh, specifically ones related to fat metabolism, stress resistance, and damage repair. Even if you're not overweight, stress resistance, damage repair are crucial for life, obviously. If you are overweight, then there's additional fat metabolism. All this stuff is very, very important. Even if you're not overweight, fat metabolism is important. So let's just go through the various stages of what happens during a water fast. Stage one, we enter into a state of ketosis after 12 hours only of fasting. 12 hours since your last meal, or you know, you could say 12 hours since you've digested your last meal would be more appropriate. Our body has broken down all the sugar and carbs and, and used them for energy. The body now turns to fat storages for energy. What is ketosis? So the body in ketosis is converting fat into ketone bodies, no longer running on glucose carbohydrates. Ketone bodies cross the blood-brain barrier and are now converted into energy. The blood-brain barrier, if you don't know, is a filtering shield that determines what is able to enter into the brain so that you know pathogens and other toxins can't enter into your brain. So it's a filter filtration device. Ketones activate the genes that were previously turned off by the cells being well-fed. So ketones lead to lower inflammation, a greater stress resistance, and repair in the brain. Ketones have been shown to enhance mental cognition, treat concussions, brain disease, memory loss, and even damage DNA. I mean, that's deep right there. Like That in and of itself is really powerful if you reflect on that. You can enter into a state where all those things are happening to you simply by not eating for 12 plus hours. The elimination of carbs can also help control and stabilize blood sugar levels, which is known to lead to greater focus, improve your mood and brain function. People who are not adapted to ketones, such as those first kind of going into the process, can occasionally report mental fog until the body adapts to the change. For myself, I personally get really, really clear and really sharp when I'm in ketosis, and it feels amazing. Uh, and I want you all to think about, you know, not just the science of what I'm sharing here, but think about how the effect on just consciousness itself, the essence of consciousness, whatever that means to you, like what the Dalai Lama is talking about. You know, if the brain is the device that filters consciousness, for instance, you know, if, if you give someone a supplement, they become angry, you give them this different supplement, they become loving, obviously the brain has a huge implication on how your consciousness gets directed through the world. I like to think of consciousness as the light and the brain as the bulb. The bulb is cracked or damaged. The light's going to come out or not come out at all. So think about how we can play with the brain in a way that has evidence and is not just random and dangerous, but in a way that can lead to the maximum benefit of light coming through you. So stage two. By 18 hours of a fast, you are deep in ketosis. Significant ketones are being generated, while at hour 12, that was more the threshold for just entering into the state. Ketones begin the production of BDNF, which stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor. If you've heard of lion's mane mushroom and it being good for the brain, it's because it stimulates BDNF. So uh, neuro means nerve and tropic means growth in Greek. 
And so BDNF is a protein referred to as miracle grow for the brain. If you don't need more miracle grow in your brain, I would like to meet you and ask you why. <laughs> as, uh, this creates a state of neurogenesis, which means you're creating new neuron connections in the brain, promoting synaptic connections, new neurons in the brain. Uh, it supports the survival of neurons, and it is a central component for learning and long-term memory storage. BDNF enhances memory and learning, increases muscle development, reduces anxiety and depression. Neurogenesis is where we're able to temporarily release ourselves from fixed and static ways of understanding and relating to the world and provide us with a fresh state to learn, unlearn, and move outside our structured way of experiencing life. Wow, that's amazing. They say old dogs can't learn new tricks. If you just stop eating for 18 hours, you will prove them wrong. Uh, this is what psychedelics do. This is what social interaction does. I'm going to go through a whole list of what BDNF enhancing substances and activities you can engage in and 99.9 percent of them are not illegal <laughs> so that's amazing to me i mean 18 hours you can do an 18 hour fast every day if you really wanted to it would be there's people that do that in intermittent fasting we'll get into intermittent fasting in a little bit let's keep going with just water fasting uh, so important to know if you take any calories they say above 30 that's a rough estimate. Some people are hardcore and they say any calories. I think personally from my experience and what I've read, under 30, you're good. You won't get knocked out of ketosis. Uh, and you also, you know, there's information about people have specific ketogenic diets. I'm not well read on all that because it's not really the most vegan, vegetarian friendly thing. And that's not my vibe. Uh, I would like to learn more about it and intend to do so. But you can have specific diets that keep you in a ketogenic state for very long periods of time, you know, months. That being said, um, you can enter into ketosis by intermittent fasting, which is what I do daily. The important thing is to allow your body to start feeding off the fat deposits and to not be getting energy from carbohydrates and from glucose and so on. Stage three, this is where it gets really, really interesting of a water fast. At 24 hours of fasting, the lack of food inhibits that MTR pathway I was talking about before, and in turn, flips on the AMPK pathway. So MTOR again is growth, AMPK is a different pathway, which signals a process of autophagy. Autophagy is like, God bless me, special, like, whoa. To read about it and then to experience it and to experience it while you're reading about it is like a whole thing that I highly recommend you try if you're in the well-conditioned health to do so. So autophagy translates to self-eating. Uh, I believe in Greek, this is a process where the body is now recycling old and damaged cells for energy. Yoshinori Osumi won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2016 for his discovery of the mechanism of autophagy. And of course, shout out to all the indigenous ancient cultures that knew this intuitively. So it's not like he really discovered it. He discovered it from a science perspective. Anyway, autophagy removes toxic proteins from cells that lead to neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and other things such as cancer. Basically, the body is responding to the environmental stress of no food and eating energy. It turns in on itself. And because of the inherent intelligence of the body... Remember, the body is a temple for God, to tie in mystical stuff. It consumes all the decaying and damaged material first, leading to a profound neurological renewal of the mind and the physical structure of the brain. It's deep. It's like really deep. It goes to like the mitochondria, which is the energy uh, part of a cell. It restructures that. It's You think about all the people struggling with emotional psychological and physical health problems it's like if you just stop eating for 24 hours <laughs> you are essentially rupturing all the crap in your system and rebirthing a whole new being i mean that's Im profoundly empowering if you're not doing this i mean you have to ask yourself why am i not doing this the key thing here is stress it's uncomfortable it is an uncomfortable process to fast but it's also once you get into the medicine of it it's beautiful Interestingly enough about autophagy, it's not limited to fasting. You can trigger it with other tools and techniques, and they're more practical than you would believe upon uh, first glance. I'm going to get into that later. So during the fast, levels of a molecule called NAD+, which is amazing, 
and kind of like a fountain of youth molecule. You can get injections of it. You can take it in capsule form. During the fast, NAD+, which is great for you, begins to rise because your body doesn't have the proteins and sugars to convert it to NADH. And NAD+, activates CERT1 and CERT3. Longevity molecule called reversitrol that's found in wine is famous for being an activator of these CERT1 and CERT3. So the CERTs, basically, they mute cell proliferation, meaning they stop the cells from growing. They create new mitochondria, and they clean up oxidative damage to your system. And that kind of damage is associated with cancer, sclerosis, diabetes, and all kinds of brain diseases and accelerated aging. So this is why NDA plus is kind of like a fountain of youth molecule. Stage four, in 48 hours of water fasting, human growth hormone HGH is five times higher than when you started the fast. Human growth hormone preserves muscle mass, reduces fat tissue. It's considered the ultimate fountain of youth. As it counteracts the aging process, it can promote wound healing and cardiovascular health. Autophagy and all the benefits of it are still occurring during this entire time and able to reach a level of depth in the body and mind that one would not access with only a 24-hour fast. People, athletes, they pay thousands of dollars to get injections of human growth hormone. All you need to do is stop eating for two days. And all of a sudden, it's protecting the muscles of the body. It's, it's toning you in. And you have to think about it. It's really simple, right? If you're not getting food and you're a biological organism, nature would be designed you to come stronger so that you can find that food. It's not like you don't eat food and then you just die. That would be totally um, inane. And you would not be survival of the fittest. Human beings are fierce, powerful animals. And our bodies have that intelligence in us, but we've been brainwashed by cultural comforts into forgetting that. By 54 hours at stage 5, Insulin has dropped to its lowest level since you started fasting, and your body is increasingly insulin sensitive. Lowered insulin sensitivity stimulates autophagy, reduces inflammation, protects you against diabetes and cancer. By stage 6, at 72 hours, your body is breaking down old immune cells, blood stem cells, and generating new ones. Three days, and you're generating new immune cells and stem cells. That's a miracle to me. And I think if you disagree, meditate on that. You can literally consciously, just by not eating food and just drinking water, you can generate new immune cells and stem cells. In a time period where everyone is concerned about health and of their immune system, all you need to do is abstain. You don't need to go to any fancy doctor. You don't need to go talk to uh, a crazy health clinic. You just need to stop eating for three days and you become like superhuman on some level uh and obviously you know when you're fasting there's an effect on consciousness an effect on your state of being where you're becoming purified of all the emotional garbage too and you're in such a flowing and happy and clear place there's some uncomfort like i said but your capacity to exert the willpower in that way is applicable to everything else that you do from the moment forward of this moment you can use that willpower to tune into creativity as opposed to eating potato chips, for instance. So, uh, it is recommended to drink electrolytes during a prolonged water fast. Uh, so, magnesium and potassium supplements and also salt. Uh, but not Himalayan pink salt or sea salt because they don't have much iodine. Table salt, believe it or not, is actually the best because you need iodine as an electrolyte. Uh, water fasts under five days it's not really a big deal if you use himalayan pink salt to my knowledge or sea salt but if you're doing five plus days you definitely want table salt get the iodine however there's also a dry fasting community which takes no water no electrolytes i've never done a long dry fast on vision quests i've done up to 10 days i've always had a little bit of water here and there um, I've seen online on Reddit people going over 10 days of dry fasting, which I definitely don't recommend, and people doing water fast up to 90 days. I think that's crazy. I don't recommend it uh, unless you're in a very severe state and you need to really deeply resolve something and you need medical supervision at that point. In the process of dry fasting, the healing effects of a water fast will implement significantly faster, more or less, meaning that when there's no water in your system, 
uh, everything speeds up even more. So dry fasting for a couple days is the equivalent of water fasting for a long time. So that means the process of autophagy, where your cells are being consumed if they're damaged, within 24 hours, you're already in autophagy, like deep in autophagy, not starting it, which is what would be happening for a water fast. It would start it because uh, your body's turning into like an incinerator and it needs water severely dehydrated so it literally bursts open weakened damaged or deteriorated cells for their water and only strong healthy cells survive like i said i haven't done a dry fast i don't recommend starting with that i personally don't really even feel it's necessary water fasts are excellent and they feel really healthy to me dry fast i've read good amount about it and it seems to be great but it's just more risky because we are mostly water and you know, it's just not necessary to go that extreme to get the benefits as I shared above. Breaking the fast. Uh, you should do it with a light balanced meal, vegetables, plant fat, healthy protein, whole grains. Avoid simple sugars and processed foods. Not doing so can lead to problematic spikes in blood sugar levels. So you want to gradually work your way into those foods. I've learned that the hard way and I don't encourage people to do it. You want to eat really simple stuff that's not not a lot of sugar which is not what you want to do but you don't want to ruin all the work that you've done with a giant fruit frozen smoothie so intermittent fasting um personally i've been following a pretty strict 16 8 intermittent fasting and it's been magical with the 16 8 means 16 hours of the day i am fasting every day eight hours of the day i am feeding and it's really excellent it's basically just like you skip dinner and breakfast or not even skip them you just compress them into a smaller window so you get all the calories you need but there's definitely a longer state of ketosis and i would say even a mild form of autophagy that comes in from what i've read it's kind of hard to say when all these things exactly start because all of us are different but these are pretty accurate estimations so it's like every day you're going into a repair and stress uh, protection mode every day and you feel that every day you feel your body getting strong you feel your mind sharpening you feel your consciousness growing and expanding and you know it's because you're in a ketogenic state and you're breaking down crap that is just not helping you out anymore worth to know is you want the feeding window to be attached to your sleep fasting in a cohesive way sleep fasting meaning when you're asleep you're not eating food obviously so you do not do not want to go to bed with food in your gut being digested. It's very bad for you. Fasting when you sleep is connected to the glymphatic system, which is a system in the brain that has to do with the movement of lymph and lymph-like fluids, and it's a garbage disposal of metabolic and neural debris. This is not the lymphatic system. It's the glymphatic system with a G. It heals infection in the body as well as trauma related to brain conditions. And digesting food in your sleep will prevent this process from functioning at optimal level. Therefore, it's recommended not to eat two to three hours before sleep and also not eating a minimum of one hour after you wake up. A great feeding window is 10 a.m. to 6 to 8 p.m. You give an extra two hours sometimes given to social constraints like everyone's having food at dinner and you're invited to a party and, you know, it's past your 6 p.m. window, but, you know, it's 7 o'clock, so with a little bit of flexibility, it's still two, three hours before you go to bed. So you should not shift your feeding window around or at least as little as possible. Keep it 10 a.m. to 6. You don't want to be like all of a sudden doing, oh, well, I'm now doing you know 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. or something like that. This can disrupt your circadian clock mechanisms and the effects of eating. So they found that people doing this, it was the equivalent of like changing time zones. That was the hormonal release. It, it creates a lot of bizarre problems and that might actually be a little bit of an overstatement it's bizarre might be like a little overstatement i would say it created more it's just not optimizing the practice you don't want to do this obviously people do all kinds of things and they live happy long lives and they say they benefit from things they do but in terms of neuroscience you don't want to do it the regular schedule of your feeding window is considered to be just as important as how long you fast for and what period during 24 hours you eat so if the feeding window drifts around, it will offset the benefits of intermittent fasting. If you schedule drifts from the perspective of metabolic health, it will make your body act like you're going to bed later, even though you aren't, because eating schedule impacts clock genes. 
80% of the genes in your system are on a 24-hour schedule, changing their levels within this cycle from high to low expression. Gene expression at the correct time leads to health benefit, and incorrect expression at the wrong time can lead to health detriment. So you're impacting your genes if you flip around these cycles. Not a good idea. A consistent eating window locks these gene expressions into a set time in synchronization with your sleep and waking state. The other crucial aspect of this effect on gene expression is when and how much light you engage with. During the day, lots of light. In the middle of night, as little as possible. Not engaging with light correctly can lead to depression and a decrease in dopamine, an increase in the stress hormone cortisol, and create a lot of problems. Bright light between the hours of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. can dampen and weaken the release of dopamine, which is like the feel-good motivation chemical in the brain. You don't want to do that. So don't have bright lights. Turn them off. If you take a 5-HTP supplement around 300 milligrams to 500 milligrams 30 to 60 minutes before sleep when you are sick, only when you're sick, it will augment the serotonin system, which will increase the circulation of the glymphatic system, which can help ramp up the immune response and lead to faster recovery of illnesses and trauma of all sorts. Uh, however, just so you know, this is a theory not 100% proven, and also you should not take 5-HTP when not sick, as I said before, because it will disrupt the natural sleep cycle, leading to a deep sleep too early in the night. Uh, it's also said, interestingly, that brisk walking at the pace where you're able to walk as fast as when you can have a conversation is what activates the glymphatic system strongly, more so than if you were running at high speeds. So I'm just deviating a little bit from fasting here because we're, we're going to go a little bit into sleep stuff and come back into fasting. Binaural beats can be an excellent tool for putting the brain in the desired frequency range. Believe it or not, the science on binaural beats is actually quite extensive and really precise. There's quality evidence from a lot of peer-reviewed studies that are not sponsored by companies that make binaural beat apps that tell us so. There's three studies in peer-reviewed journals, which Andrew Huberman took a look at, and they seem to be good quality, not sponsored research, not paid for by a specific company. Binaural beats have been shown to modestly improve cognition, attention, working memory, and even creativity. But the real boost from binaural beats appears to be for anxiety reduction and pain reduction. I one time did a flotation tank years ago, many years ago, and uh, they had them running through the tank. The first session I did, I thought they were on, they were not. The experience was cool, but not profound. The second time I did it, I made sure they were on. I came out and it was like, whoa, that was deep, like very powerful so binaural beats i can attest to them they work really well so there's delta waves that we have in our brain if you measure with an eeg monitor those are like low frequency sounds which can help transition people to sleep and staying asleep there are theta waves that can assist with non-sleep rest good for meditation and healing work too alpha waves which increase alertness they're great for recall of existing information and then there's beta waves which are great for bringing the brain into focus for complex learning Gamma waves are good for learning and problem solving, and you need to be in a highly alert state to bring new information in. So higher sound waves stimulate advanced learning. Low frequency waves put the brain in a relaxed state versus high frequency sound waves put us in an alert state. As some of you know, I have a newborn child, and we've been using a white noise machine, and just when we started to do that, I came across this information. White noise machine just makes shh type sound to help the child go to sleep. And interestingly, I came across this at the right time because it says that it's been found that a white noise machine is excellent for enhancing brainwave states for adults, but can be detrimental for infants and young children who are still in a process of learning how to auditorily map and sort frequencies through a mechanism in the brain called a tonotopic map. The white noise is too overwhelming and obscure of a stimulus that prevents a developing tonotopic map from forming a clear placement for the sound. It is analogous to taping down keys on the piano and trying to isolate specific notes. It's not helpful <laughs> for brain development at an early age. For adults, white noise can raise baseline levels of dopamine from, a, from the area of the brain called the substantia nigra, which is one of the richest sources of dopamine in the brain. 
and the dopamine here activates our motivation, focus, and desire to learn. And so now to come back to fasting, and I'm going to step away from the scientific jargon and some of the more specific mechanisms and how they function and go a little bit more into the philosophical, perhaps spiritual implications and perspective as to why you should fast and what it is that you want to get out of it and talk a little bit about my own personal experiences and perhaps have this be on some level some inspiration and motivation for why you should make it a regular practice. So the first thing that comes to mind is human beings have been around for hundreds of thousands, if not longer than that, years, many, many, many years, right? We've been around forever. And during that time, there's only been a small fraction where we've really had access to resources of food at the levels that we do now. It's quite absurd. Uh, I can't think of another time in human history where things such as obesity have run so rampant. Obviously, I haven't been around very long, but if our recorded history is accurate about anything, it definitely would indicate to us that human beings are in this very bizarre moment where we're so deviated and separated from the natural world that it has become normal to gorge ourselves and gluttony has become a pastime essentially in a lot of ways and it's even if you don't fall into a category of obesity or needing to lose weight because fundamentally that's not where i'm coming from with my approach to fasting what i'm most curious about is looking at how can we step into an optimized state of being and wellness and happiness and vitality so that when we go out into the world we're able to put our best foot forward with compassion direct our willpower and our creativity into a place of true service towards benefiting others towards creating a resonant powerful holistic vibration of vitality in our existence and sustaining that because there are many forces that are at play that aim to not necessarily consciously such as junk food perhaps are keep us in a place of opposition to that so as i was saying right we're in this very bizarre moment of time where it just makes sense to gorge it's like there's no check necessarily coming from the external world on how our appetite is uh, satiated and how we can seek out food that's totally toxic there's just nothing but encouragement if anything from the outside world because there's an overabundance there's constant advertisements there's constant stimuluses being directed at us in the way of corporate media and things like that along those lines all types of triggers that are in your everyday walk constantly to keep you fat satiated only when you are consuming right and I think this is a, a really interesting meditation on becoming a consumer or a producer of culture, a creator of culture. If you really want to become a more creative person, if you want to become a more spiritually and creatively conscious person, whatever that means to you, it doesn't have to be affiliated with any religion or tradition or anything like that. If you want to become a more awakened person, that's an even better word, just awake to life, then fasting should be number one on your practices and i say number one because it's so fundamental to survival it hits something it hits a nerve that's so deep in the system because it's so connected to your desires and your will to live and your fundamental concern for instance you look at for instance uh abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs i'm not looking at it right now but I'm quite certain that uh, food and being physically in a place of wellness is the number one concern. So once you're able to essentially hack or crack is a good word too. crack that foundation and challenge that foundation, break apart that foundation, reanalyze, relearn and question that foundation in a visceral way, not intellectually, but just by literally not eating, question that that will rupture the entire structure that is what you can constitute as yourself. And this is why fasting has always been at the focal point of every single major religious tradition on earth. It's, not, it's universal because it 
cracks the foundation of who you are. And that is an extraordinarily powerful thing to reflect upon. And this, and what I love about this uh, approach of looking at things from a neuroscience angle is that when I do that, when I've done the research here, what I'm finding is that there is a correlation. Science really well supports mysticism and spirituality. It does not support religion because of its dogma and all kinds of ways to interpret things. And what what uh, necessarily makes something a religion and what makes something a spiritual tradition is really nothing more than perhaps someone's um, superficial interpretation versus someone looking at it from a more metaphor metaphorical lens. So not to necessarily like rang on the religion, but it has natural distaste in my mouth, just to share that, <laughs> to say the least. At the same time, right, the practice of fasting is something that's found in all these religions. So we're not necessarily hammering on religion so much as we are hammering on belief systems. That's what we're getting at here. What's full of shit is belief systems, our belief systems. And Fasting is a wonderful antidote towards belief system, towards consumerism, towards mass consumption, towards static thinking, towards physical degradation, towards everything in life that seeks to drag you down. It is because it, it's at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs, meaning it's one of the most fundamental things holding up the whole structure of the self. Once we're able to challenge that and say, wait a minute, fundamentally, I need way less food than what I thought I did. And in fact, there's something more powerful that asserts itself once I stop eating. And I'm able to harness that force and direct it into a place of creativity, of compassion, of awareness, of awakefulness of meditation, of prayer, of gratitude, then suddenly our hierarchy of needs, I would say it completely restructures and a depth comes in where there's something more powerful than food that's driving things inside of you, that's driving your motivation and willpower. And I feel that once we connect with this capacity to counteract this extraordinarily fundamental drive inside of ourselves, we're able to apply that willpower and awareness to many aspects of our life, towards our relationships, our art, our music, starting an art or music practice if you don't already have one, towards a place of awareness of health. For instance, the first time I did a three-day fast, I believe it was in... 2009 so I think that's about 11 12 years ago almost and I remember going back in to eat and I did this basically this was not something that I did with much knowledge it was just like I felt like crap and so I decided I was going to stop eating and I was just getting into spiritual practices and I didn't really have any guidance and I, I had very limited insight to look <laughs> appropriate ways to do this up on the internet and I kind of just did it and I remember the first thing that I went to grab for was Kraft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, I, my hand reached out to grabbing it. I go, I eat this to cope with emotional toxicity in my system. And it perpetuates it. And I remember at that moment, I just put it down. And then within a year... A year and a half, I had become a vegetarian, and shortly after that, I was working at a raw food restaurant in New York City. And the thing that I want to take away from that moment was once you deprive yourself of your habits, once you break apart that foundational structure and those needs that are ultimately illusions, they are needs, but to the degree which they need to control you is, is fundamentally an illusion. That's what neuroscience is telling us and, of course, spiritual traditions. But once you're able to break that apart, and you, then you decide to come back to it because you have to eat, obviously. I'm sure there's people who would like to tell you that they survived just on breathing, but I'm not really in that camp yet, but open-minded. Nonetheless, when you come back to eating, how 
more acutely aware if you do so with a place from a place of equanimity, you become about your habits. And you watch as the habits reassert themselves. And I've done many, many fasts. You know, I've done long fasts, I've done short ones, I've done intermittent fasting as I was talking. And every time I come back to eating, I'm always very acutely aware at simultaneous how much I have grown in my understanding of why I'm craving this food over that food and how difficult it is to hold that awareness. Shortly after even long fast, like one, two days, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'll just have like one bite of ice cream. <laughs> Vegan ice cream, I say. And uh, the point here is obviously not to become fanatical. I really am against that in many ways. So actually, you know, if you like to eat ice cream every now and then, please go right ahead and eat ice cream. <laughs> it's fine. There's nothing wrong with having some ice cream here or there. But there is something to say about uh, – Lacking the control to choose how much and when and finding I'm having a bite and then 20 minutes later a pint and a half are gone of Ben and Jerry's and you're wondering what just happened. So the thing that I found though is that you know simultaneously you become more aware. You also realize how difficult it is. But then also the more often that you do it, the more fasting adapted your system and your consciousness become. You formulate a connection with the process of fasting. And I found for myself that I have learned how to break the fast appropriately and really gradually drop into normal, quote unquote, eating habits for myself. And that process is ultimately a process of yoga. It's, it's learning to control and harness the lower energies to create a more harmonious existence you have with life. And I think food, it's, it's such a, it's such a, wonderful thing to first tackle because it's so fundamental that it hits something so deep so primal inside of yourself the need to survive that's driven by every fear and every egotistical yearning and so as you begin to consciously counteract that all of that crap comes up all of that the anger the clingingness, the attachment, the greed, the selfishness that all of us as biological organisms have within us, at least on some level, just to perpetuate our survival, we're now confronting that and experiencing it and we're not suppressing it. It's like by the act of suppressing the food, right, the, the thing that needs to feed gets, starts to like really come out. And simultaneously, though, because by fasting, we are – and now this is an interesting thing to say. I'm going to say it anyway, is that we're kind of bringing ourselves into a weakened state, right? I mean it's – and I say that's funny because at the same time, we're also in this hyper-aware and there's a lot of strength coming through. I was talking about previously like human growth hormone uh, and there's bouts of adrenaline that are coming into the system. There's heightened awareness, the ketogenic state. You're more attuned. Everything's a lot sharper. But also, too, there's a moment in your five-day, four-day water fast, three-day water fast where you will start to have, feel weak. That's just part of the process. And so what I found is really beautiful is that you have all this like emotional garbage that comes up, all these insecurities, all these fears, all these cravings, desires, frustrations, escape patterns that you're depriving yourself of. But simultaneously, there is like this – weakening might not be the best word. A pacifying effect is a better way to put it that comes over the whole being and this is where i think fasting becomes really a spiritual experience because you're experiencing this pacification of all of that impurity that you're wishing to release from and so in a sense because you're activating the will so strongly to deprive yourself of this very fundamental craving you are cracking open the doors of your subconscious mind and you're creating tremendous inner space for all kinds of memories, thoughts, emotions, feelings, physical sensations, creative, visionary states to flow through you. And it is an extraordinarily profound experience that has to be experienced for it to be fully understood. And 
What's really wonderful, though, it really feels as if it is a purification. Because as these forces are arising within you, you are giving them space to be there. Instead of saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to feed, the, I'm gonna feed the, myself with tons of ice cream or salty snacks or whatever kind of garbage, or even not garbage, but just something that's sensually pleasing, in essence, to suppress this experience, choosing not to do so allows that experience to come out fully. And the inner work and inner transformation and capacity to shift habits and realign your perspective as to who you are, what you're doing here, and what's important in life, I really feel is limitless when we step into fasting as a spiritual practice. And the thing is that actually it's not that hard to fast. That's one of the funny things about it. When I first heard the idea of people going without food or water, such as doing a vision quest, I was like, oh my god, how could someone actually do that? And then once you do it, you just realize how much of these things are just habit. They're just psychological conditioning. They're just byproducts of living in an environment that has told you your whole life that you're weak, you're not whole, you need something, you need something outside yourself, you need more. Happiness is opening up a can of Sprite or some bullshit like that. And all these delusional things that come from marketing and advertisements and mass consumer culture and just being around people that have consumed that information and made it a reality. But once you start to break from that, once you start to open your mind to the capacity that you're infinitely stronger and much more fierce than that, and that you come from a bloodline of people that used to hunt woolly mammoths if you go far down the chain long enough, you realize that all of that stuff is a lie. And then once you start to deprive yourself of food, which does take a lot of willpower to break these habits until you've at least started to initiate yourself into the process of making it a regular habit, but it is difficult for a moment, but then once you get into it, you find it's quite easy. It's not, it, and not, and when I say easy, it doesn't mean you're not challenged. It just means that you're able to sustain yourself past the waves of craving, the waves of desire and discomfort, trusting that on the other side of that is a very pleasurable, blissful, uh, peaceful, equanimous, and sharp refined capacity to create to learn to discover to be open to be clear to feel lighter and so then it becomes a really interesting experience of now you're no longer craving salt or sugar and instead what you're craving is a state of catharsis is a state of flow is a state of creativity is a state of more heart space more heart compassion connection with people that's one thing that from uh, that perspective i can really attest to from a heart space i really have always feel within about 36 hours of fasting it's just feels like the walls that i put up in my heart to can disconnect me which is just a natural egoic thing that's created psychologically for us to feel safe in the world to create boundaries and divisions so we can you know map out and plan things and get what we need to survive and so on and so forth i always experience that part of myself really start to literally just crumble and erode and it's one of the most beautiful and relaxing and rejuvenating and replenishing experiences that uh, i think one can have and then once you start to realize like wow there is a way to induce this experience that is antithetical to taking something just that statement right there there's a way to induce an experience of flowing vibrational openness love and equanimity from the deepest part of my center and it requires not taking things it's pure abstinence the power of integrating fasting you know for someone struggling with addiction just with that understanding alone you realize that the doors to love i remember reading a book about uh, about rumi and and how fasting was such an important part of the of the practice for rumi one who speaks so much of love and poetry it's no surprise because you you are able to just come back in touch with all the parts of yourself that keep you uh, from feeling full from keep you from feeling whole 
And it's just a really beautiful process when you start to realize that, wow, I actually have the power to step into this place. I don't need to take a drug. I don't need to I don't need to get into a relationship. I don't need to accomplish something as a professional in my field. I don't need to become a, a renowned artist. I don't need to seek out some beautiful scenery. I could be sitting in the waiting room in the airport with my mask on, six feet away from everybody, and feeling more connected at that moment than I ever have in any other kind of context, socially speaking, on some level. So it's something to worth reflecting on that that feeling of connection, that feeling of empowerment, that feeling of visionary, that feeling of catharsis, the feeling of flow, it's accessible to us through abstinence, through patience, through trust, through discipline. And what's really beautiful about it is that it empowers the body too. We're not talking about depriving the body like a masochist. That's not what we're discussing here. We're, this is actually strengthening the body. It strengthens the nervous system. It strengthens the cardiovascular system. It strengthens the hormonal system. It strengthens the brain, the neurological programming of the brain. It goes down to the level of the mitochondria and the DNA, the immune system. It repairs your whole system. So the question is simply, why would you not do this as I asked before? And the only thing that I believe someone could really conjure up in transparency if they're really being honest with themselves is laziness or fear or habit or being close to trying something new or a lack of knowledge about it. And this is where I think it's important to have the education and the knowledge because I think most people, you tell them, oh, I only had water for five, four or five days – they would say, oh my God, I'm worried about you. <laughs> Which is why I've had that experience before. So I don't really tell people oftentimes when I'm water fasting anymore because people just get really confused about it. But what they don't seem to understand is that it actually reinforces the physical system. It reinforces every system. It makes you more attuned to what you're here to actually be doing and who you actually are which is something that is limitless and unknowable and undefinable through language, but something that, well... I'm not going to bother to try to explain to you what you are. You have to figure it out for yourself, and as do I. <laughs> but the point is that fasting is really a doorway, and I think it's really, like I was saying, it should be the fundamental doorway because food is such a fundamental thing that connected to all of our other cravings. And what happens is that once you start to really discipline yourself in this way and you see the benefit and you're no longer craving salt or sugar but you're craving this equanimous flowing freedom oriented state then that plays over into other aspects of your life you start to uproot a lot of other habits this is like a domino effect and this i think should be the first one because it's actually quite simple to induce if you just make a commitment towards it and it's extremely powerful in every aspect of your life and then once this domino gets going, from there you're like, okay, why would I want to sit around and watch TV? Why would I want to get angry and yell at someone? Why would I want to not exercise, knowing that exercise has an extraordinarily similar effect on the entire being as does this process I just went through? I'm searching for this state of consciousness, something that's inside of me. And I finally got a glimpse and a taste of how powerful it is. And it's coming from within. It's not a drug-induced experience. It's not something that came from a person of authority. It's not something that came from a religious belief or belief system. It came from my own inner neurology. Why wouldn't I do cold water immersion? And it just kind of stems from there. And that's how then my experience with it in life. And uh, I think we're going to close it there. This is part one of neuroscience of healing starting with fasting and a little bit of sleep stuff there as well and this is just going to be kind of rolling like this and do a couple episodes on different subjects and if there's a specific subject that you would like for me to cover that i don't wind up covering in the series shoot me an email jwalsh32390 at gmail.com and i think that knowledge 
of knowledge is extraordinarily powerful. So I want to share as much as I can through my own research to other people so that people can have shortcuts in how to access these states of consciousness and free themselves from the afflictions that have held people down for so long. And especially at this time where we're locked indoors, many people afraid to go out and just doing all kinds of things such as emotional eating and so on and so forth. So happy to be in service in this way, share what I know. If you find there's things I share in this series that are inaccurate or incorrect, I'm extraordinarily open-minded. Please do your own research, send me your sources, let's talk about it, figure out what's real and get moving in that direction. I'm not interested in my own interpretation of things so much as I am what is accurate and correct. If such a thing as truth exists, I would like to go in that direction. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Keep it real. Be well. Be at peace. Be happy. Hush, hush. Oh.